Turn to Titus 3, Titus chapter 3. Since you sat for the singing, you can stand for the preaching, right? <laughs> Not sure if that's a slight against my length of sermons or what that, what that nervous laughter was for. But. <laughs> Titus chapter 3, I wouldn't actually do that to you. I've been reading a biography lately uh, of Francis Schaeffer. If you don't know that name, it's a name you should know. He uh, was part of the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 1920s through the 1940s, was in the Presbyterian denomination, and was connected to a guy named Carl McIntyre, who became essentially a lightning rod for the fundamentalist controversy. And the, the rub, or the, the nucleus of that controversy, was over the, the nature of the scriptures, and uh, essentially the inerrancy uh, of the scriptures and, and uh, whether or not we were going to stand with the truth or not. So the modernists, the liberals were uh, arguing against the supernatural reality of Jesus' miracles and all kinds of stuff like that, a kind of a naturalistic approach to the scriptures that we can explain everything from a human perspective. Um, and so Carl McIntyre and others in the Presbyterian denomination, and then there was a, a Baptist strain of the fundamental lists, and uh, we could spend the rest of the night talking about that. But Francis Schaeffer was an associate of Carl McIntyre, and then uh, from that denomination got sent to Europe as a missionary, served as a pastor for a while in Missouri, and then eventually went to Europe as a missionary uh, to plant churches, and, and really what kind of became the, the nucleus of his ministry, or the focus of his ministry in Europe was essentially a retreat center in which students and, and seekers would come and uh, would have time with Francis and, and with his wife and his family and could live there for a time as long as they were uh, obeying the rules of the community. And essentially it was a, a think tank uh, about worldview topics and, and especially, especially as it related to Western civilization and the kind of the cutting edge of Western civilization in the arts, uh, in the humanities, in the college scene, what was being taught uh, in science and mathematics, that kind of stuff. And so Schaefer was uh, adept at kind of cutting through the issues and seeing what the, the core of these things were and, and trying to assess, basically assessing then uh, the Western mindset from a biblical perspective. A brilliant man had uh, the, the joy of writing several books, and near the end of his life, he kind of uh, finished out his ministry life with a, a massive project, kind of spurred along by his son, uh, Frankie Schaefer, who... Uh, unfortunately, is not walking with the Lord, has denied the faith, and now has, has turned on his parents and, and has actually published books that uh, are mockeries of the Christian faith, sadly. But in 1974, I think it was, he uh, was an artist and was um, proficient in film. And so he said to his dad, hey, how about we work on a project in which you bring all of your knowledge about Western civilization and the development of civilization overall, uh, and how about we, we take you on scene uh, to some key points of Western civilization, you know, the Roman Empire, and uh, take you to, to Italy and, and show the, the walls of old Rome and the, the streets of old Rome and, and make some points, and so they did that. So they have a, a video series, it's on, it was on Prime, I don't know if it still is, but uh, how then shall we now live? Uh, he also then wrote a book uh, in light of that video series, and I, I don't really even know which one came out first, but um, it's a tremendous read and well worth your time. The purpose of it was to show how thinking in civilization precedes culture. 
so how you think, how, how you process facts, uh, the filter by which you determine what's true, right, and good, determines then how you live, which then uh, produces culture, produces particularly art uh, and the, the, uh, the expressions of culture in the arts. And as he works through uh, from ancient Rome all the way to present day Western thought, the pressing, um, the pressing question is, in light of this understanding of our culture, and basically where he lands is that we're really no different than uh, Rome before she fell because we have abandoned truth, we've given ourselves over to uh, all kinds of, of animal-like lusts of the flesh, and our society is decaying and falling apart, and we're giving ourselves over now to violence. I mean, he was prophetic. If you read his book from 1975, you like read yesterday's newspaper in uh, his, well, um, website headlines. Sorry, we don't do newspapers anymore. But anyways, he was so prophetic and so helpful. And as he works through that and kind of digests culture and helps you think uh, biblically about all of that, the pressing question is, in light of the decay of culture, in which obviously uh, mankind is driven by godless thoughts, which produces godly living and, and moral uh, despicability, and when that's obvious, how then should we now live, as Christians in particular? How, how do we now live in light of all of that? And it's a good and right question. And frankly, it's a question you either in your subconscious or your conscience ask yourself every day. That, that really presses upon you when you get up in the morning, is, is how am I going to now live today in light of the Fox News headline I just read or the radio blurb I caught on my way to work? How am I now going to order my life? How am I going to speak? How am I going to interact with others? How am I going to give myself to my employment? How am I going to relate to my family in light of all that's happening in our world. That really is a question which drives Paul's little letter to Titus as well. It's not a new question. It's a question that every Christian of every time has to grapple with every day. Paul is essentially instructing Titus how the church should be ordered and then how Christians should live in light of the present evil age. And so in chapter one, he says to Titus, listen, you need to make sure every local church has godly, exemplary men who can be examples of Christianity put in place in those local churches so that the local church is shored up. Men who can teach sound doctrine and who know how to refute those who contradict it, he says in 110. And so he's calling Titus to put things in order so that the church can be the pillar and buttress of truth in a society which is decaying in its rebellion against God. In chapter 2 then, Paul lays out for Titus to then lay out for the church, churches of Crete what it means to be a Christian. Here's how it looks. Here, here's the character of a Christian who holds to sound doctrine. Here's how their life should live uh, out in the stage of world events. And he grounds all of that uh, healthy living, sound living in accord with healthy doctrine, with sound doctrine, a right grasp of right truth. He grounds all of that in the nucleus of the letter, which we spent a lot of time talking about, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to 
all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and godly lives in this present age. He goes on to then uh, lay before us the, the blessed hope of the soon return of Jesus and that a, a people bought by the blood of Jesus should be zealous for good work. So he's basically telling us that we're all enrolled in this school of grace. We've all been rescued by the grace of God, namely Jesus. That's who he's talking about. It's grace has epiphanied, has shown up. That's Jesus and him coming to earth and brought this saving grace to us. And the saving grace does not leave you alone. It does not give you eternal life and then let you live however you want to. That's not how God's grace works. His grace is persistent. It is constantly pursuing you to change you. So if you've been saved by this grace of God, namely in Jesus Christ, then you will be sanctified or being sanctified by this grace. You'll be changed and transformed and uh, trained by this grace. And he tells Titus at the end of chapter 2 and then kind of rounding the bend into chapter 3, Titus, your job is to be constantly reminding the churches of these things. Teach them with all authority. Don't ever let them forget this stuff. And then he says, here's how they should now live in in verses uh, 1 and 2. He reminds them in verse 1 of the the persistence of grace, that, that they always need to be reminded that their lives should be driven by this grace. And then in verse 2, he tells them, or the end of verse 1 and then in verse 2, what that looks like. Here's, here's how that life should be lived out as it relates particularly to the world around you. Now in verses 3 through 7, okay, I've brought you all the way from 1, 1 to 3, 3. Now in verses 3 through 7, he's going to lay down for you the grounds of godliness. It's frankly somewhat repetitive because he just told us in 2, 11 through 14 that we have the grounds for our godliness in this grace that trains us. But now he's going to be, I think, even more clear, especially about the gospel as it relates to our godliness. Really, this is crucial for us, isn't it, as Christians, to think about how we think about godliness. Does that make sense? We need to think about, we need to contemplate how we think about godliness. Because it's so easy to, to make this uh, our doing, as though godliness is, is an outward thing. It's a way that we live, it's words that we speak, it's music we listen to or don't listen to, movies we watch or don't watch. We, we like to make godliness external or things we accomplish so that we can check off a list in which we then are godly or are ungodly. But the scriptures are relentless, and, and I mean relentless. They're constant. They they never fail to point you to the reality of godliness as an inside-out endeavor. That God's at work in you to change you, to transform you, to uh, Paul's word in Romans 12, 2, is to metamorphize you as a, a caterpillar in a cocoon, to, to totally change you into now a butterfly. This is God's work in you by his word to change you from the inside out, that, that true godly character is formed through transforming our hearts and minds and conforming us then to our Savior. And that's what's happening in our text. So that's the nucleus of the truth of Titus 3, 3 through 7. Before I read that text and and before we jump into it, I want to ask you, 
Do you want to be more godly? You're like, come on, Matt, I'm here on a Sunday night. Seriously? You're asking me that question? I really am. Do you want to be more godly? Do you desire for your life to accord itself more with sound doctrine? If we went around the room, could you tell me two or three ways right now that you're wrestling through your own ungodliness and how you long to be more godly in those areas? Have you been that clear in your pursuit of godliness? If you haven't, I trust you will be, and I trust this text will will draw you to that reality. Titus 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It is an excellent thing for you to want to pursue good works. Not only is it excellent, but it is profitable. In fact, this is your best life now, as it were, to borrow a phrase from a false teacher. This is your best life now, to pursue godliness in accord with gospel truth. Now, before you pursue it, you must understand the grounds of this godliness, and that's what our text is about. Godliness flows from this fountainhead of truth presented by Paul in verses three through seven in particular. A godly life is always built upon this foundation. When we were on vacation in Colorado, we uh, were staying at a ranch that had an indoor, or a, excuse me, not indoor, an in-ground pool. And if you've swam in an in-ground pool lately, you know, maybe the one in your backyard, you have a, a, a pool house, a, a pump house, essentially, away from the pool, which is responsible for the circulation of the water, right? To keep it filtered and constantly going. Well, in your, when you're in the pool, you have no idea, uh, I mean, unless you know these things, that that's going on. You just enjoy the blessing of the pool. But that pool would not be nice to swim in, believe you me, if there was not something circulating the water and filtering it and putting back in clean and good water for you. Titus 3, 3 through 7, is like that pump house for that pool. Your life is that pool, and it is a blessing to many others when it is is clean and well-kept and running well. And, And the pump house which keeps that in order is the truth of the gospel presented by Paul in these five verses. If we're going to be godly, we need to understand the grounds of godliness. And there's two truths that stand as that ground. And that first truth is we, uh, who we were. And the second truth is what God has done. Who we were and what God has done. So who we were. He starts with 
with who we used to be pre-Christ, pre-conversion. That's in verse 3. He moves from the logic of verses 1 and 2, calling us to be obedient and ready for every good work and speaking evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then he, he reminds us that we used to be like those people we now need to be courteous to. And to be nice to them, we need to be reminded how terrible we once were. And we were that pre-Christ, pre-conversion. And then that leads to the explosion of gospel truth in verses 4 through 7. We were that, but we're not that anymore because of the loving kindness and mercy of God. All of it then is a lesson in the proper grounds for godly conduct. You can never forget who you were. As we consider how it is that we should now live in a world that's in rebellion against God, we must always keep our eyes on the reality of our former condition. And this is robust in the New Testament epistles, and I would say in particular in Paul's epistles. He is quick to remind you of who you were apart from grace. One of the greatest fuels you can throw on the flame of your godliness is the fuel of remembering your past sinfulness. And I don't mean to keep guilt on yourself, but I mean to be reminded of what you were saved from. To rejoice that God rescued you from that. Paul lays out that former condition with four couplets. So in verse 3, there's, there's eight descriptions in total. I think they ride best in pairs. And so he gives us four couplets of our pre-Christ condition. This is what it means, by the way, to be dead in our trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2. I know there's a lot of talk about that in the, the evangelical church as we wrestle through our soteriology and our, our doctrine of salvation and how it is that the sovereign grace of God in salvation and in election gets uh, carried out into the reality of, of human uh, choice and choosing and, and the will of man and the responsibility of man to repent and believe. I know there's a lot to say there, and there's a lot of argument in that conversation about what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. Well, let's look at other texts like Titus 3 that tell us what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. So Paul gives us another description, another list of descriptors, and he tells us right away that we're, we were foolish and disobedient. We were foolish and disobedient. Foolishness is the absent of thought. Uh, the word he uses specifically is uh, alpha primitive in front of the word to think. It's someone who's not thinking. They're foolish. They're, they're dumb in what they're doing. He combines that foolishness with disobedience, and, and that also is in the Greek an alpha primitive. It's a, the alpha in front of it taking away from the truth of the word. And it, it's a a communicating a, a departure, a, an absence of obedient submission to God. So apart from Christ, these two things combined, apart from Christ, we lack sense. We don't understand, and we lack sensibility. So we lack sense, we don't get it, and we lack sensibility, we don't care. We're not sensitive to that which is God's truth or to obeying God's truth. We don't care what God wants us to do. We're foolish and disobedient. We're also led astray and enslaved, he says in the next pair. We're led astray. We're deceived. So the foolishness and the, the disobedience get worse. So not only were we foolish without sense, but now we're deceived. Not only do we lack knowledge, but we're also being led astray. 
These both, by the way, are passive, aren't they? Being led astray and enslaved to various passions and desires. They're passive, as though evil has sprung upon your heart, and, and in a way it has. I mean, certainly you chose to rebel against God, and, and rebellion was foisted upon you as you, part of the human race, were committed as a son and daughter of Adam to rebel further. This enslavement uh, is the furtherance of our disobedience. So not only are we disobedient, but we're enslaved to our wicked, sinful passions. He says it's an enslavement of various passions and pleasures. The word for passions is that internal burning of desire. It's a, that explosion of lust, that demand from deep within you that says, do this now, you cannot live if you don't have this. Find it and make it happen. And you know that longing of your sinful flesh, demanding you to obey it. That word for for pleasure is the same word we get our word hedonism from. It's the giving yourself over to whatever feels good, whatever makes you happy, whatever it is you like. And so if you are not in Christ and, and before you were in Christ, you were enslaved to these things. They were your master. These internal bubblings over of your selfish, sinful desires called the shots. They, they told you how it was going to go. And these desires to have pleasure, this various passions for the pleasure of the flesh prodded you along. You're foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved. You're also living in malice and envy, Paul says in verse 3. So before Christ, you're Passing your days, he says, a descriptor of, of the constant, ongoing reality of this malice and envy. Now just think of, of that description, malice and envy. What a terrible way to descri describe your relationships with others. So malice is that you look at someone else and you want evil for them. You, you have thoughts of evil for them and you just wish that something bad would happen to other people. Envy is you look at someone who has something good that you want, and you want that for you, not for them. It's like the, the worst of both sides of the equation. You want what's bad for everybody, and anything that's good for anyone else, you want it for you. This is what we're like before Christ. We pass our days in malice and envy. This is the air we breathe. This is who we are. And then he finishes the list by saying that we are Hated and hating. He uses two different words for being hated and hating others. The first word is kind of the word of, of despicable. It, you, you get to the point in this progression of sinfulness in verse 3 to where your life is a despicable reality to others. You're an anchor on the boat of everyone else's journey. You're just a constant nuisance to everyone else who's trying to make headway in life. You are despicable, and they hate you for it. And then you and your sinfulness return the favor, and you hate them back. And it creates this horrible scene of sin-dominated, Christless existence. And we can see that dominating our culture. I mean, this is the, the description of every headline you'll read tomorrow. This is tomorrow's newspaper, tomorrow's headlines on the website, in Holy Writ. They'll all fit into one of these categories, right? The, the arguments between nations will fit into one of these categories. 
whatever horrific crime you'll read about tomorrow will fit into one of these categories, won't it? This is what a Christless existence looks like, and it's easy to read verse 3 and think out there. And Paul is intentionally saying, read verse 3 and look in here. Who you were. Now, of course, you weren't all these things to the greatest extent of how bad they could be, but all of these things were resident in you, apart from Christ. The grounds for godliness starts with us remembering who we were. And then it moves to what God has done, and praise God that it moves. Right? There's no growth, there's no growth and no ground for growth if we stay in verse 3. And that seems obvious, but we seem to easily forget it. So what has God done? That's clear in verses 4 through 7. This is very likely an early hymn in the church. It's a, a poetic uh, one-sentence explanation of the gospel. Maybe it's a, a catechism answer. I don't know. But it, it's some kind of formula, it seems to be. And I say that because it's so well-written, so compacted, so concise, and so full. Like he packs so much into these four verses. But beyond that, he says in, in verse 8 that that is a trustworthy statement. And what he's talking about is what he just said in verses 4 through 7. And so this is a statement, it seems to be, that, that kind of rode as a banner above the church of the first century. And so Paul says this is gospel truth that's a trustworthy statement. The core verb of these four verses, there's one main verb, and it's in verse 5, in that he saved us. So this is the ground of our godliness, the work of God to save us to rescue us from everything in verse 3. To liberate us from the enslavement and the deceit and the foolishness and the disobedience and the hatred and the malice and the envy that were ours before Christ. God saves us from that. There's four things as you read through what God does in verses 4 through 7. I want to point out four uh, emphases that Paul makes about this work of God in the gospel. The first is that God is the source of our salvation. God is the source of our salvation. There is one actor for this one main verb. He saved us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Paul is tripping all over himself, as it were, to make the point that this is God's work. You were lost and dead in your sins, verse 3. You were foolish and disobedient. You were full of malice and envy. You were despicable and you hated others. You were deceived and enslaved you had no hope of saving yourself, and so Paul makes the very clear point that you being rescued from that condemned position is God's work. The only hope for that rescue is found in God alone. That, by the way, fuels your pursuit of being godly. If you miss that key component, my experience is that I then make the grounds for my godliness my own effort. 
if I lose sight of the work of God to save me, then I start to believe the lie that it is my job to sanctify me. And Paul is tripping over himself throughout Titus to say to us again and again, never forget the gospel. It is grace that trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and godly lives in this present age. It's not you who make that happen. Now, we know from other texts, namely Philippians 2, verse 12, that we must work hard, but it's not us working with our energy. It's us working out the energy we've been given by God. And it's rooted in this very fact that God is the source of our salvation. Therefore, he is the source of our godliness, right? You follow the logic, I hope. Second main emphasis that Paul has in this text is that God's merciful kindness is the ground of our salvation. So God's the source of our salvation and his merciful kindness is the ground of our salvation. You know that God's under no moral obligation to save sinners, right? The only moral obligation, if, if we can even talk about moral obligations to our creator, but if we could, the only thing we could come up with from scripture is that he's under moral obligation to put us all in eternal condemnation, to deal with our sins by his righteous wrath. He's under no obligation to save sinners. And Paul makes that clear in this text. He doesn't root it in in some obligation of God. He roots it in the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God, his perfections, God's perfections, his, his attributes, as it were, are the grounds for his saving work. So because he loved us, he sent his son for us, John 3, 16. While we were his enemies, he demonstrated his love for us and gave his very own son on our behalf. There's four different words in these verses to describe the character of God which compelled this saving work of God. So verse 4, Paul uses the word goodness and loving kindness. His goodness is the, the quality of his character by which he is good and does good, as the psalmist says. It's especially seen in how he's compelled by his goodness to intervene to do good for people who don't deserve good. That kind of plays into the next word, the loving kindness. It's the, the word from which we get our word philanthropy. It's, it's love of others. It's love of mankind in general. God is the greatest philanthropist, as it were. He loves mankind, and being loving, he's moved to choose and work and accomplish the salvation of his own. He's also said to save us, not according to our own works of righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's the third word. So goodness, loving, kindness, third word, mercy. There's there's nothing in us which compelled his action. You're, You're... Greatest deeds, past, present, future, are stained with your sinful corruption. None of them would compel God to look down at you and say, that one is worth saving. That one is worth giving my son for. That's a trophy I want on my eternal shelf. Nothing in you makes that true about God. He's compelled by himself, his own mercy, to see sinners in their helpless 
destitute, condemned state to save us by the sending of his son. This is his own action of mercy to keep us from what we deserve. That's what mercy means, to to not lavish out on someone the punishment they've earned. He withholds that punishment and doesn't just withhold it, but he transfers it, moves it from us to his own son. That's mercy. I mean, it's merciful for a human judge to to see a criminal whose whose plight is going to be made worse by some sentence they deserve, and so they they mute the sentence in some way. They they blunt the edge of that sentence and they they lessen it so as to give the criminal a chance at a normal life. That's mercy, but it costs the judge nothing. The judge will go home and sleep that night just fine and enjoy all the pleasures of his judge salary. It costs him nothing. His life is is fine. But for God to be merciful, as the righteous judge, he had to take the punishment due sinners that he was going to show mercy to and transfer it from them to his own and only son. This is mercy. Then number seven, we're told that we're justified by his grace. It's a word we say all the time and don't think much about what it means. It's, in essence, the overflow of his goodness. It's the bounty of his character spilling over into our lives by which he shows us good things, does for us good things, blesses us in ways we obviously do not deserve and shows grace to us, namely in saving our soul and lavishes this flood of benefits upon us because he is himself the God of all grace. This is the ground of our salvation, these four words, goodness and loving kindness, mercy and grace. It has nothing to do with our work, everything to do with God's character. And the third emphasis that I think Paul makes in this text about the gospel is that God's work is the method of our salvation. God's work is the method of our salvation. So God himself is the source of our salvation. His perfections or his character, his goodness are the grounds of our salvation. And then thirdly, his work is the method of our salvation. So if it's not of our work, which he says clearly, it's not of our righteousness, then it has to be his work which secures our salvation. So what is that work? And Paul gives us a a few descriptors of that work. He speaks of it as the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then he also speaks of it as being justified by God's grace. This washing of regeneration, I won't get into all the the fights over that, if that's baptism or some other kind of washing. I think it's baptism of the Holy Spirit by the word of God, to cut to the chase. Remember in John 3, when when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, if you want to turn there, you can, I'm going to turn there. John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he is explaining the new birth, the birth from above. And he's telling Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In verse 5 of John 3, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And as you 
see this fleshed out in the early church and in particular in the letters to the early church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, a text you know really well, as he goes through this list of ungodly, horrific rebellion against God in verses 9 and 10, he says in verse 11, such were some of you. Sounds familiar, right? We were just there in Titus 3 verse 2. For you yourselves were. He's reminding us of, of what we were. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Remember in Peter's letter, when he's writing to his churches, to the exiles from Jerusalem. When he writes to them, he speaks of the new birth and being born again by the seed of the word. Remember when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and Ephesians 5, and he speaks to men to love their, to husbands, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And then he, he speaks of how they should wash them with the water of the word to purify their bride as Christ does his church. And that's what Paul's speaking of in Titus 3 when he speaks of the washing of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, being born again by the word of God, applied by the spirit of God, being raised from this dead life, verse 2, to this new life, verses 3 through five, three through 7, and being born again in our Lord Jesus. And then the renewal of the Holy Spirit, very similar thought is found in Romans 12 and verse 2, where Paul, rejoicing in the gospel in verse 1, says... I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, all the mercies he's talked about in the first 11 chapters, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and perfect. And then in verse 2, he says, and do not be conformed. So along with offering yourselves as a, a living sacrifice, also then do not be conformed. Do not be pressed down by the world's way of thinking. Don't be stamped by their stamp and conformed to their image. Rather be transformed, be be changed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. Now, how is our mind renewed? 2 Corinthians 3, as we're told of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and gazing upon the glory of Jesus Christ at the end of that chapter, we're changed from one image of glory to another as we are renewed in Christ. How does this happen? It happens in the Word, which speaks of and lays before us Christ. And so this is a work of the Spirit by His Word to renew us. This is what Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. He says, therefore, if any man, any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. This is what happens when you are born again. You are renewed by the Holy Spirit and that process is ongoing throughout your life. And then he speaks of being justified by the grace of God. That's the other descriptor of this method of our salvation. It is to be justified by his grace. Uh, Paul in Romans 5, I can't quote it, so I'll look at it real quickly. Paul in Romans 5, verse 1, says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ be justified is to be declared right with God, thereby having peace with God. Because there's nothing standing between me and God. There's nothing on my account. 
but the righteous action of my Savior. And so I'm justified by him, and it's all of grace. It's nothing I myself have done. And so this salvation is by the method of God. This salvation, the end of it is God's inheritance, or to say it the way I said the other three, God's inheritance is the end of our salvation. That's the last point, the last emphasis I think Paul makes in this text, that God's inheritance is the end of our salvation. Back in Titus 3, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I was at a board meeting on Thursday for Berean, and Todd Briscoe, one of the other board members, shared a devotional from 1 Peter 1. And it gripped me as he talked about our inheritance. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. For you Now, I'm not old enough to be into the inheritance thing yet. Maybe at some point I'll get there with my, and I don't, you know, will I get anything? I have no idea. And you know that experience, right? Some of you are old enough to, you, you thought there was some kind of inheritance coming, and by the time it got to, to the point of inheriting that, there was nothing left because you had to pay for all their medical costs or they went on vacation or whatever they did, that you no longer had an inheritance. It, it, was, it was a changeable inheritance, it was a fading inheritance. It was a non-guaranteed inheritance. Not only that, but our inheritance, contrary to that, is, is unchanging, unfading, and imperishable. But, but it's also, we are also given a down payment of that inheritance. So Maybe you've had that happen in your family. I don't know too many that have, but maybe there's a, a down payment given, a, a $10,000 ahead of time down payment on the inheritance. Or we'll buy this for you now and it will be your inheritance, whatever that is. But that down payment takes away from the ultimate inheritance, right? And just speaking in human terms, when you do that, you're, you're taking away from what they would get later to give them something now so as to guarantee, hey, listen, there is still something left for you. That's not what God does. Ephesians 1, Paul makes clear that you've been given the down payment, the, the ahead-of-time deposit in your very own soul of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of this eternal life. That doesn't minimize being given that down payment, does not minimize what you're going to have later, it rather spurs you along to know that everything promised in the word will come to full fruition on that final day. That's what Paul points you to in Titus 3. He says, the end of your salvation is this inheritance of God. He has set aside for you the eternal joy of life in him and with him. Beloved, think now then about how that impacts godliness today. Think beyond that to how everything we've talked about impacts godliness. 
This is the fountainhead out of which, this is the, the pump house that keeps churning the waters of your holiness. As you consider the reality of life, pure, undefiled, complete, and perfect, in Christ, set aside and guaranteed for you. And that your, your salvation in this moment is leading you to that. And it is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And that's why when I asked you at the beginning, do you want to be more godly, everyone in here who is in Christ said yes. Because you've been given the Holy Spirit in you who prompts you along to want more of this life, not less of it. And friend, that is sure confirmation of your salvation. Because apart from God doing that in you, you would want no part of that. But because God has done that in you, you want to be more godly now as you look ahead to enjoying the fullness of godliness in the days to come. So may you consider your own pursuit of godliness and see these grounds for godliness as sure fodder to fuel you in pursuing Christ. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you for your work in our lives in this way to teach us and instruct us and train us by your grace with your word. Help us, Father, to remember who we were and what you have done so that we would pursue being more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. God's grace to you. You're dismissed.